0: If you're able, comfortably, would you remain standing to honor God's word? Today It comes to us Romans chapter 3. We started a sermon series in the book of Romans, and today I'm going to be reading chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes a boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. There's a story about Bach, the composer. J.S. Bach One time his wife was playing the harpsichord and he was in bed and she was in the music room and she kept playing this unresolved chord, an unresolved seventh. And it bothered Bach so much that he could not sleep. He finally got got up out of bed, went into the music room, sat down at the harpsichord and he played the appropriate resolved chord so that he could sleep. Not overwhelmingly funny story. It's just kind of a story about Bach. But there is something. I think there's something in each and every one of us that cries out for dissonance to get resolved. Let us pray. Lord, the words on the page here are Seemingly too good to be true. It's good news. These are your words, and we want, we, you should be the one to speak them. So we, we ask for the humility to hear your Holy Spirit speak to each one of our hearts, that you would be our teacher. Amen. Well, if you're with us in this series, last week Paul was talking about, chapter 2, about there is no room for judging. We can't judge other people because we're all under the curse of sin. That's the human crisis. All of us. It captures all of us. And Paul was talking about this. And then he continues this theme in chapter 3. The beginning of chapter 3, he says, Scripture leaves no doubt about it. It's all throughout Scripture. There's nobody living right. Not one. Nobody who knows the score. Nobody alert for God. We've all taken the wrong turn. We've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. Paul says, I can't find a single one. Now, have you ever heard that on a Hallmark card? How does that sound? By the way, happy, good, good morning. You all sinned, every one of you. We all fall short because all of us, religious, unreligious, believing and unbelieving, all of us are under the power of sin. Try as hard as we might. We can't get out from under it. We can't right the wrongs. Total need is what Paul is saying. You and I are in total need need. And left to our own, we're in big trouble. Nothing's working right. It's a mess. According to Paul, that is the main trouble with the world, sin. That's the human crisis. That's the main trouble in Romans, but it's not the main topic of Romans. The main topic is what Paul announces right here in chapter 3 at the end, justification by grace. The main topic of Romans is that something has been done about the human crisis. The main topic of Romans is that there is a cure for the human crisis. The main topic is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Even Paul's been describing this crisis. But something amazing happens in verse 21. Paul shifts focus and he says, but now. But now something's happened, an event has occurred, a world-changing event, but now, in spite of the crisis, he's told us about the crisis, but now, he says, we are justified by God through faith. Paul knows that this is an enormous topic, and he wants us to understand it. He wants it to penetrate our hearts and our minds. And so he employs various metaphors and he comes at it from different angles with different language. The first is that Paul uses the language of the courtroom, and that's where we get this word justified. The language that Paul uses here is legal language, this is language that a judge would use. He, he uses when he passes sentence on someone who's accused of a crime, the judge acquits or justifies the accused. I heard the word, I learned the word justification in Sunday school, and they taught it to me like this. Spell it out like this. What it, what justified means is just as if I never sinned. That's always been helpful to me. Like you actually could get to that place as if none of that mattered. It's covered. This is the language of the courtroom. Some of you remember, remember back in the day when you had a word processor? This is before computers. We went from typewriters to word processors. Remember that? Now we have computers. But back in the word processing day, if you're old enough, you would, your, your word processor would do this thing when the words and the margins were not lined up. Remember the right justification? You remember this? And what would it do? It would straighten them so your margins were fit on the page. So this is what Paul is talking about, what God does for us. We are sinners, and we're out of line, and we're, out, we're a mess. We are all over the place, and it's not working. It doesn't look right, it doesn't act right. But God justifies and lines us up, straightens us up, so that we can have right relationship with God and right relationship with each other because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. John Calvin said that justification is the, was the main hinge on which Christianity turns. This right here, he said, this is it. We need to know this. This isn't a hinge. Things are all wrong, but God straightens everything out. At the very core, justification is the good news of God's acceptance of unacceptable people. I like the way Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, he once called this the furious love of God. The furious. It's just, it's ferocious. God's love is ferocious. It seeks us because it wants us. It's love. He does it. You know, Paul in this letter has, I think he's setting up a courtroom scene in many ways. You know, in a, in a trial, there's an opening statement. You know, the attorney gives his opening statement. And then evidence is presented. And then finally, there's a closing statement. And then a, and then a uh, verdict is given. I think Paul is doing some of that here in this book. And in chapter 1 was his opening statement. And a good prosecuting attorney or a good defense attorney in their opening statement will tell you where they're going, right? They'll lay it out at the beginning. This is what I'm going to do. This is the big thing. I'm going to tell you right now. And Paul does that in chapter 1. And his opening statement is this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the good news of God, the power of God. Now how's that for an opening statement? Isn't it a little bit curious that Paul uses this word, ashamed? Why would you say that? I mean, why would Paul even introduce a negative into that equation? Like, is there, are you, you want, is, Paul, is there something to be ashamed about? I mean, if you're selling a used car, do you say, you know, I want you to know, I'm not ashamed of this car. <laughs> you wouldn't lead with that, right? You wouldn't lead with that, and say, oh, I'm not ashamed. I know what this house looks like, but I'm not ashamed of it. It's a very curious thing that Paul would say that in his opening statement. Why? Well, Jesus once told a story. It was his most famous story. You know the story. He, and he was telling the story, and, and around in the crowd were Pharisees, Jews, legalists. Religious serious. And Jesus told this story. He said, there was once a father and he had two sons. And the younger son came to the father and he said, I want my money now. I want my share of the inheritance now. And in that patriarchal society, you didn't do that. No, no, no. Because what that son was saying is, Father, you're better to me dead than alive. I wish you were dead. But since you're not Give me my money now. The religious series of the Pharisees would have said, what kind of a story is this? No son would dare do that. This is nonsense. He would never do that. This is crazy talk. No no son in the right mind would go to the Father and say these words. And Jesus continued his story. He says, that son went and squandered all the money. The Father gave it to him. Again, they would have been like, no, no father would give him the money after what he said. He did, and he went, and he squandered all the money, gambled it away. He wasted it on drug and drink and anything, any pleasure until he had nothing left. He was at rock bottom, he said. And then he thought, you know, my father's servants are eating better than me. Maybe I'll go back and I'll plead my case. You can imagine walking back into the courtroom, Now, the Pharisees at this point would have probably been going, okay, now now we can understand this part of the story because now the Father's going to let him have it. He's going to let him have it. Sure he is. This kid, this brat comes back. When he gets home, you're going to let him have it. By the way, this is your fault. You did this. You ruined your life. You offended me. You dragged the family name through the mud. Now you come back here, you think I should welcome you back after what you did? Jesus tells the story. He said the father saw the son walking down the road, saw him from a distance. The father, with joy in his heart, ran toward him, threw his arms around him, kissed him, wouldn't even allow him to make his speech. See, at this point, the Pharisees are saying, <laughs> No way. No way. This story is nonsense. This story is crazy. No father would ever do that. No father would say, come back to my house. All is cleared. All is forgiven. All is fine. And by the way, not only that, we've got a party planned. We're going to celebrate that you're home. They would have been laughing at Jesus because this is too Crazy. It doesn't make any sense. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this, he knows what they're thinking. Like, it is actually that. I'm not ashamed of it. I know you think this, this, is, this is nonsense, that God would, that the Father would, but I don't. I've come to find that this is true. That's Paul's opening statement. And we're going to watch it unfold. This language of the courtroom, we have been justified, meaning you can come back home. We're going to act like it didn't happen, and we're going to forgive that. But Paul also uses the language of the temple. He uses the word atonement. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. In verse 25, Paul uses the Greek word hilasterion, and here it's translated sometimes as mercy seat, sometimes as propitiation, other times as sacrifice of atonement. Theologians have spent their entire career trying to understand this verse. They have been written volumes after volumes after volumes because it's really important. What is Paul talking about here? What happens? The mercy seat was the gold lid placed on the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember the lid that was placed on top? The mercy seat had cherubims that were going all over, out, outward from it, and it was placed on top. And the presence in the middle of that was called the mercy seat, and it was thought that that's where God resided. And once a year, the high priest would go in, be in the presence of the mercy seat of God himself and a sacrifice was made and blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat so that sins would be forgiven and covered for the people on behalf of the people. This was God's dwelling place. And it's also a very good description of Jesus Christ himself. He was God wrapped in human flesh and dwelling among us. In a very real way, Jesus was the fulfillment of what the Old Testament mercy seat was pointing toward. Not only was he the mercy seat, but as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews points out, he was also the high priest. The only one able was Aaron to go in that he could never fulfill the role. He himself not only was the high priest, not only was the presence, but he was also the sacrifice. Remember the priest would sprinkle the blood? Paul's saying, Jesus' blood covered it once and for all. Took care of it all. This is the language of the temple. Meaning that justification that happened, that straightening up, it cost Jesus everything. But his blood was spilt for us. Our sins are covered. And that sacrificial system it's now no, no longer, Jesus is the sacrifice. But Paul use, uses even more language to describe what's going on here. He uses the language of the marketplace. He uses the word redeemed. Verse 24, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. You know, God doesn't just justify us because when a court judge makes a declaration... He leaves the courtroom. He makes declaration, not guilty, and then walks out. And you're kind of left to your own, right? Um, not interested in what happens to you from there on out. But what Paul's saying here is, this judge, after declaration, wants more, wants you and I to be set free. The word "redemption" means you've been bought out of slavery. A price has been paid to bring you out of slavery. Now, this might be a little bit foreign to us, but it would not have been foreign to the original hearers. In ancient times, they didn't have bankruptcy court or law. If you couldn't pay a debt, you would lose your land, and you would probably become an indentured servant to the owner of the land, and you'd have to work the land until you paid off the debt. You'd become, in effect, a slave. That's what happened. So if you were renting, if you were leasing land and you were hoping for a crop and there's a drought, it didn't happen, you were in debt, the owner would come in and say, now you're my slave, you're going to work this off. You become a slave. But what if somebody came and said, yeah, you do have all that debt, but we're going to go ahead and pay it. It's taken care of. But it's more than just an economic transaction. It's more than that what Paul's talking about here. Um, How many of you ever had debt? (laughs) How many of you ever had large debt? (laughs) Doesn't debt do something to your life? Debt tends to take away your freedom, does it not? You got to work a second job. You're worried all the time about how am I going to pay this off? You are concerned, what if interest rates go up? Your life isn't free when you have a lot of debt. You're constantly having to focus on it. It's enslaving. But you know what? There are other things that enslave us as well. Some of us are carrying around and we are enslaved to guilt. A thing that I did, a thing that I didn't do that I should have. The years of regret that I carry around with me every day, how I treated that person, the things I said, it is enslaving, and we rehearse it over and over again, or shame. Some of us carry around the hurt of broken relationships, and it enslaves our thoughts, and we are not free. What if we could be redeemed from all of that? See, Paul is saying not only are we justified, and not only does the blood shed by Christ cover our sins, but it's also so that we can live, fully live. In her description of her conversion and coming to faith, Anne Lamont remembers being at the absolute bottom of her life. Nothing was working in her life. Disastrous relationships, drugs, alcohol. She hit rock bottom, and for some reason, she went in to talk to an Anglican priest, prepared to be criticized and condemned, right? It's your fault. You know, you, know, you know anything about responsibility of your actions? I mean we know that speech. Look what you've done. You made these choices. This is the result. It's the same speech that the Pharisees thought the father ought to give to that son like what are you doing? You did this. You you were a mess. You, 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 you. She said, I was prepared for that speech. I knew that speech. I was ready to be criticized and condemned. But she says, I was taken aback when he didn't do any of that, that he actually listened to everything I had to say. She writes this, he was about the first Christian I had ever met whom I could stand to be in the same room with. Most Christians seemed almost hostile in their belief that they were saved and you weren't. Finally, she said, what does it mean to be saved? And this wise priest responded and said, you know, I I guess it's like discovering you're on the shelf of a pawnbroker, dusty and forgotten and not worth very much. But Jesus walks in the door, tells the pawnbroker, I'll take her place on the shelf let her go outside again, redeemed, set free, guilt, shame, debt, all of it. Jesus says it's gone. Let's remove that. want you to live. want you to go outside again. There is something deep within each and every one of us that cries out for dissonance to get resolved how are we going to get it resolved hard work moral living Re- religious observance Mm-mm. see your life and my life our life in sin is an unresolved chord and the music it produces is just doesn't sound good it doesn't sound like it should it's jarring it's unpleasant but Now. But now, Paul says, God has come. God has acted. God is full of grace. That grace makes what was unresolvable and turns it into a magnificent symphony. When Jesus walked this earth, the music of his life was resolved. And he walked among a world of jarring noise and unpleasant sounds. And, and it was resolved, and people heard something different. And they said, That is so amazing. They wanted to hear him speak, and they wanted to be around him. That music is being played today and every day, it's, it's in the sanctuary. That music is being played on the streets of Scottsdale. If you have ears to hear it, for those who are listening to it, the gospel, the good news, the symphony that is the gospel, it becomes the joy of their life. And far from being ashamed of it, it becomes their deepest love. And their lives are marked by beauty. They live freely and lightly. They don't have much fear. They're patient and kind and so very, very hopeful. Friends, what music are you listening to today? Is it unresolved? Is it cynical? Is it bitter? Is it the music of the oppressor saying they're out, they're in, they're out, they're unworthy? Or are you listening to the sweet, sweet music of the gospel of the Lamb who was slain? But now God acted in Jesus Christ. For us, for our salvation, he came to take away the sins of the world. Let us pray. Lord, with Paul, we have a hard time grasping the bigness, the wildness, the beauty that's presented here. It's unimaginably good. And it reminds us of how good you are, and it points to your beauty and the grace that is the the driving force in our world. Help us to receive that grace to receive the beauty that you have for us and be set free to live as your citizens. We pray that that would take hold and take root once again in our lives this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, we'll sing.